So, you know, if you've, if you've been worshiping with us over the, the last three months or maybe just listening along on the podcast, you know that we're uh, taking a step away from the three-year lectionary cycle of scripture readings, uh, and we've been concentrating instead on a more direct form of expository preaching, which is just going line by line, chapter by chapter through whole books of the Bible, uh, one of which we just finished last Sunday with the final sermon on the book of First Thessalonians. And today we're just going to move right on into the sequel to that letter uh, and see the Apostle Paul's ongoing concern for the little church that he planted in Thessalonica uh, and the big truths really that his epistle to them continues to hold for believers like us in the 21st century. And so I hope you have your own Bible with you. It is going to be on the screen, but I think it's good to have it uh, in your own scriptures in front of you. And I'm going to be reading 2 Thessalonians, uh, the whole of the first chapter, so verses 1 to 12. So listen for the voice of the Spirit. Paul writes for Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that at the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. And God our Father, in Jesus Christ, you poured out on us the light of your incarnate word. And so, Father, having now read and, and heard it, show us in it the wisdom and the joy of your ways that we, may, uh, that we may know what is good and do what is right for the sake of your Son and for the glory of your name. Amen. So we kind of know right out of the starting gate who this letter is from, that it's from the Apostle Paul. Uh, but like we mentioned in Sunday school, it's also clear he intends for the Thessalonians to read this letter not merely as the ideas of one man, uh, no matter how much divine authority he may have as an inspired apostle, he wants them to read it also as the concern and the burden of, of Silvanus or, or Silas uh, and Timothy, uh, as well these two men who we know from Acts chapter 17 that were with Paul when the church in Thessalonica was started. And then right away comes the description of the readers that the letter is addressed to. And we find it's addressed to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I really like how uh, John Piper treats this in his commentary. He says of this, the apostle here expresses that as a church, we have both a father and a Lord. What does this mean, he asks? Being in a father's care means sustaining, protecting, and providing discipline. And what does Lord imply? It means authority, leadership, and ownership. Corresponding, he says, to two of our deepest needs, the need for protection and direction. He says we want a merciful father to be our protector, and we want an omnipotent Lord to be our champion and our leader. And when I read that, I, 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 I want to say I think those things uh, are needed every bit as much today in the 21st century as those first Thessalonians needed them, right? Because our 21st century world is every bit as corrupt and chaotic as theirs was 2,000 years ago. Uh, it's just the names and the players have changed. And so like believers of every era, we need a vibrant faith that can flourish in the midst of persecution and affliction realizing that it's not a sign of God's disapproval, but instead exactly the opposite. That that affliction is the hard grit of sandpaper that's designed to round off the rough edges of our character and shape us more and more into the image of Christ. And so Paul continues on, he says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of our God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions, and in the afflictions that you're enduring, this is evidence, he says, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. But then Paul doesn't just leave them hanging there with the idea that anguish and oppression is all there is to look forward to. He goes right on in verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, in that tiny little section from verse 6 to about verse 8 there, Paul's pointing us to the all-important reality of both the holiness and the justice of God. Two very important things, but a concept, I'm afraid, that has been almost completely lost in our postmodern, post-Christian world. Uh, that has become so politically correct, we're afraid to talk to anybody about almost anything of substance, except for the weather. And even then you have to be careful you don't offend a crazy climate change fanatic, <laughs> right? But much, much less actually be able to speak out for the honor of God's reign and for the righteousness of his laws and the holiness of his word. But brothers and sisters, that is where real justice comes from, All right? It's like in Psalm 96.13 that says, uh, he will judge the world with justice and the nations with his truth. Amen. Psalm 97, 2, that says of God, righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Right. Which is good news for believers, as Paul is explaining this morning, but not so good for the persecutors of the faith. And for their legions of progressive political agitators and professional malcontents that make up the minions of the woke mafia. And. What we find for both Christians and non-Christians alike is that within the reality of God, one of the major attributes we're going to discover uh, to, to the joy of some and the horror of others is God's divine justice. Right? And, and as believers, we thank God for that, right? Because that's where our perspective of what justice is changes from our own personal perspectives 
and from our own personal opinions and our own personal preferences and into God's. And church, that is the only thing that is ever going to set this crooked world straight again. Because a true understanding of justice is not measured by how much you can accomplish for this issue or for that cause. It's not going to be about how many signs you carry or virtue signaling Facebook posts that you make or pithy little bumper stickers that you stick on your car. I know a true and unbiased understanding of justice begins when we measure ourselves against the plumb line of scripture and see what we really look like in God's eyes and then find out just how far off the mark we really are. And then take that and confess in the words of Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no, not one. Not, not anyone, no, no one, not you, not me. And that's why this world as a whole and we as individuals should be really careful to not be going around shaking our fists at heaven and demanding justice because I can promise you that no one, especially me, really wants God's justice. Because right? I know I'm a sinner. And the problem is that if God gives us justice, we all die. Because the Bible is plain that the wages of sin is what? Death. death. Uh, and not just a simple annihilation kind of death. That would be all too easy. To just get to live any way you felt like. And thumb your nose at God. And persecute his church and the people that he loves. And then get to have the eternal peace of just being snuffed out like a candle. Satisfied in the knowledge that at least, hey, I, I did it my way. I know Paul makes it pretty clear today that for those types, their future is not nearly so simple. But that is, he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so, church, we're not talking about just a death, but a living death. Really lived out for all eternity. And, and you know, church, as I was thinking about this this week, you know, there are, there are many things about the afterlife that Scripture does not make 100% crystal clear. But hell is not one of them. When even a cursory reading through the four Gospels shows us that our Lord Jesus, he talked about it plenty. That's just a fact. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than any other person in the Bible, and he talked about it more even than he talked about heaven. So there is just no use in trying to deny that Jesus knew about and believed in and warned about the absolute reality of hell and the fact that it is a very real place, whether our modern age wants to believe it or not. Uh, and, and believe it or not, there are a lot of people who don't believe in it. Uh, in fact, in, in research for this sermon, I looked at the latest a survey by the Pew Research Group that said only slightly more than half of American adults now believe in a place called hell. So, some people think it's just an old wives' tale. Some think it's just a, a state of mind, like a, a psychological archetype of repressed fear and guilt. Other, other folks chalk it up as just a construct of the medieval church to scare people into obedience and financial servitude. And today, perhaps no other teaching has received more widespread doubt than the doctrine of hell. Uh, to the point that in some evangelical circles, if someone still says they believe in hell, they're called old-fashioned or out of touch or out of step with reality, foolish and ignorant. Many modern liberal church leaders preach and write to the concept of an eternal hell where sinners burn forever is ludicrous and demeaning. Uh, and, and there are some whole denominations that believe that those who reject Christ will simply one day be totally annihilated 
like I said, that just cease to exist. No eternal life and no eternal consequences. And I guess that sounds pretty good, but it's a lie. And so this morning, I'm not really concerned so much with what individual people believe about hell. I'm not concerned with what the world believes about it, and I'm not really concerned even with what other pastors or denominations believe about hell, but only on what does God's word say about it. And more to the point, what did the Apostle Paul want the Thessalonians, and by extension us, to understand about it this morning? And I think he was pretty clear that every person is going to spend eternity in one of two places. And church, we need to prepare for that reality right now. Because the Gospel of Matthew attests, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered into his presence. And he will separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. And then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Which church means that ultimately... We, like those persecuted Thessalonians before us, can know for sure that the injustices of this life are going to be dealt with. And that suffering and pain is going to end. And that ultimately God's justice is going to be done. The righteous will be rewarded. The sinners will be punished. Because if it weren't that way, then the sinners win, right? And people like Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong get the last laugh. They, they lived the way they wanted. They pursue their own evil desires, and then what? Just go on to an eternity of nothingness and blessed peace? I don't think so. But at the same time, we can't forget that when it comes to sin, our hands are not so clean as we would like to pretend them to be. And the truth is, as one commentator wrote, that the tension between justice and mercy is a reality in which we all live. He says the only trouble is we want justice. I love this line. He says, we want justice when we've been injured but mercy when we're the ones who've committed the offense, right? That's that's really a sobering thought, right? He's saying the trouble is we want justice when we're the ones who are offended, but we want mercy when we're the ones who've committed the offense. Another commentator said, in our clamor for justice, however impassioned, is almost always skewed in our favor, but where the light of the gospel shines, justice demands we agree with God's assessment of our true condition since when we demand justice and lawfulness, we affirm the same standard that also condemns us. Because, church, of God is anything like the scriptures say, then not only should we expect God to judge sin, but we can also be confident that in the end, no one will be able to find fault with his verdict. Because God's justice is always perfect. And, you know, I think when, when we look around at the world and at some of the complex issues that we all seem to be facing, I think... Sometimes we have a tendency to miss the forest for the trees because, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say, you know, if we could only solve this problem or, or that problem, then everything else in the world would be okay, right? Like, like if we could just solve world hunger, or if we could just solve systemic poverty, or if we could just solve lack of education, then everything else in the world would all be just fine. But none of that is really our problem. Our real problem is that we live in a world that sin has ruined. And why did that happen? It happened because in the beginning God created a man. He put that man in a garden to keep it and to tend it 
and to guard it. And he gave that man one command, just one simple prohibition to avoid. And he held that man to perfect, perpetual obedience to that command. And he promised him life if he kept it and death if he didn't. And he didn't. And so through that man, death and sin entered the world. And every generation born from that man inherited the infection of original sin and, and the progression of all the sins that proceed from it. And our world is broken because of it. And so we stand now, all of us, guilty before a holy and righteous God. But praise God, one who saw our problem. And out of his sheer goodness, as we read in the, the Westminster Creed, out of his sheer goodness of his grace, sent us away back from the brink of complete destruction. And he sent us his own son, who was not born in the line of ordinary generations, but born of a virgin, free from the stain of Adam's guilt. And that baby grew into manhood, actively living out the law of God on our behalf and obediently accepting his own sacrificial death, where the Bible says God laid on him the iniquity of us all at the cross. In the one place, the only place, where God's perfect righteousness and his relentless love for us meet and are reconciled. At the cross where God's justice was perfectly administered and his mercy publicly displayed when God took upon himself the punishment meant for the guilty. It meant for me. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, for he, meaning God, made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And doing that, so in that moment on the cross when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those awful moments, Jesus was experiencing the very definition of hell in our place. Complete with all the abandonment and separation from the Father that that entails. And church, he didn't just take our sins like you could take something and like a filthy rag and hold it at arm's length. No, the word says he became them. Because of that, in that moment, God the Father turned away from our Lord Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul put it like this. He said, our God is too holy to look at sin and he could not bear to look at this concentrated, monumental condensation of evil in the most intense display ever experienced on this planet. So God averted his eyes from his son. The light of his countenance was turned off from him. And all his blessedness was removed from him, from this son that he loved. And in his place was the full measure of the divine curse where Jesus experienced the weight of mankind's sin and total separation from God for the only time in all of eternity. And he experienced the loneliness and the abandonment and the separation that sin always produces. Except in this case, it wasn't his sins, it was ours. It was yours and mine. Which is one of the, the reasons, and sometimes people ask me about this, in the Apostles' Creed that we repeat every week that says he descended into hell. That's what we're talking about. And church, he did that for you and for me for no other reason than that he loved us. In spite of the horrible price that it cost him, what our perfect, sinless, infinitely just God, according to his own design, established the means whereby sinful, guilty human beings could be reconciled to him. And all of that without one ounce of guilt being swept under the rug. Or one bit of justice unserved. Or one drop of mercy wasted. All because of what Jesus endured for us. Just like that old hymn says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And church, that's not all because you see, even though the scriptures and our creeds may affirm that Jesus died and descended to hell, it also affirms that hell and death couldn't keep him there. 
That's why in the book of Revelation, when our Lord appeared to the apostle John, he said to him in Revelation 1.18, he said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Because Jesus' suffering and death on the cross crushed the power of hell and ripped the hinges off the gates of death. As Paul confirms in, Second Col in Colossians 2, rather, he says, He, meaning Jesus, canceled the record of the charges against us, and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly and by his victory over them on the cross. And church made a way for all of his elect, from righteous Abel to the thief on the cross, all the way down to you and me today, to enter into the presence of our God in paradise. When, as we read in our primary text today in 2 Thessalonians, on that day when Jesus comes, on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. And then Paul kind of takes all, all of these ideas that he's written about and all these things we've discussed this morning in this first chapter of the letter. And he says, to this end, he says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good, every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, what, where does all this point? What, what end does this point to? What's the purpose of it all? What's the purpose of all the people who've ever lived? All the stories they've ever lived out? What's the point of all the pain and the pleasure this universe has been witness to since the dawn of time? It's that God would be glorified in his love gift of the son. The gift of a bride. The gift of a bride in the form of a holy universal church made up of individual believers who Christ loves and who love him back. And who for all eternity will be eternal trophies of his mercy. Saved and lifted out of the chaos of this fallen creation. Delivered from the heartache of this world and the demonic harassment that we face into his glorious presence, church, for all of us that are in Christ to marvel forever at the foot of his throne. Amen.